You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Today, I, I know, today's a really difficult sermon to preach three times. Um, it's one of uh, probably the most difficult texts in the Bible. I know I say that every week, um, but uh, I mean it this time. Uh, we're talking about uh, Sodom and Gomorrah today. And so what I want to do is I want to read, I'm going to read a very, very, very large portion of scripture today. And if that, um, and if you were like, why? Because it's, it sets context and it's the word of God. I know sometimes when I read the Bible, you're like, yeah, yeah, blah, 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 blah. Just get, tell me what it means. And that's not how we're to approach it. Uh, what it means is what, what, as I read it, that's what it means. And I know that we need further insight and further explanation. And that's what sermons are, are supposed to do. But uh, I really want to wait in this text for a while. I want to spend some time here and I want to read it. And so I pray that you would just read it with me here. This te- if you've never heard this before, you might be a little bit shocked maybe. And as Tarek um, said before the sermon, if there is any young kids here, I'm, I don't know, I might say some things that are... Probably page 13, just saying. But let me read verse, um, starting at verse 16. And as I approach this, I know that this is a very difficult and controversial text today. And so I, I want to approach this, first of all, with humility. Please know that I, I'm, I'm, as I've been studying for this for so, quite some time, I want to approach this text with complete humility, but also love. But I can't, we can't just be all love. There has to be, as important as love is truth. And so I want to speak truth today. Now, if you're here for the first time and, or you've been here and you're like, this is a really difficult text talking about the judgment of God. We dealt at length with the judgment of God in December in a sermon called What God Does About Evil. And please go back and listen to that. If you listen to this today and you're like, wow, judgment is crazy here. Why does God judge we dealt with that again at length in that sermon, What God Does About Evil. So please go back and listen to that. It's online. But let me start in verse 16. I'm going to read all the way through chapter 19. So verse 16 all the way down through chapter 19. So it will be lengthy, but please pay attention and follow along. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set, up, uh, to set them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? saying that Abraham will surely become a great nation, and all the nations on the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring uh, to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood before the Lord. And then Abraham drew near to to the Lord and said this, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city... 
I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham said, notice, no more exclamation points now. Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes, suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy this destroy it if I find 45. Then again, he spoke to him and said, okay, 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 suppose there are 40 that are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak. Just suppose there are 30 found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again just this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And the Lord said, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way, and he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Then the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom, When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you can rise up early and go on your way. The angel said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But Lot pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered into his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great. So they they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law? Sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out to this place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people have become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-laws who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city, but it seemed in the son's eyes to be jesting, son-in-law's eyes to be jesting. And the morning dawned, and And the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to them. And they brought them out and set them outside the city. And they said, they brought them out and said, Escape for your lives. Run. Do not look back. Don't stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant ha- if your servant has found favor in your sight, and you, will have, you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And he said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, but I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city is called Zor. 
And the sun had risen on the earth when the lot came to Zor, and the Lord rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew uh, and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like a smoke of a furnace. So it went out and when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of uh, of the overthrow, which he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Last section. Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters, and the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay with uh, my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you will go and lie with him that we may preserve the, our offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger rose and lay with him, and he did not know where she went, uh, when she lay down and when she rose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father, firstborn son of uh, a name, his name was Moab, the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. And he is the father of the Ammonites to this day. That is God's word. That is this very insane story of Sodom and Gomorrah. As you notice, it started with Abraham almost bartering with God, 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. And then these angels showing up and them gathering on the outside of this house and calling out, wanting to gang rape these angels. And then they escape, they get Lot out and his daughters. And then it ends with Lot's daughters going, everyone's dead. Fire has rained down from heaven, consumed everybody. There's no one to, let, let's take one for the team, get dad drunk, sleep with dad. And the story ends. Welcome to Genesis. <laughs> let's pray, ask God for wisdom and insight this morning. Lord, we pray and ask God that you would teach us. I pray more than anything this morning. I know that the idea of a God who judges is offensive to some of us. The fact that you would rain down fire from heaven and brimstone from heaven to destroy every living thing in Sodom and Gomorrah rubs us some way the wrong way. But I also know that the perversity of the city, no matter where we're at on, uh, in, in, in any sort of way we think about life, the perversity of the city is also gross. So God, help us to know these things. How do we know that you are a God of love and a God of justice, a God of mercy, but a God of truth? Teach us, Lord. I pray that those that are in here that are really here learning about the character of God and have not made a decision to follow you or not, I pray that they will learn your heart, God. That you are holy, that you are loving. Teach us. Anoint me. I need your Holy Spirit to order my, my mind in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, I heard a statistic this last week that said most graduating high school seniors guessed that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. A lot of us don't really know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, or we don't really understand it. 
A lot of us in here, maybe when I read this, this is the first time you've ever heard of this story. You're like, oh my goodness, that's in the Bible. It's very important that we get this story right. It's very important. Listen, it's very important that we get this story right. Very important. It is indeed one of the most difficult and intense stories in the entire Bible. It has rape, wrath, angels, fireballs from heaven, incest, homosexuality, and very bad hospitality. This, this account of Sodom and Gomorrah lives in infamy even throughout the Bible itself as it's repeated and recounted over and over again. It's referred to multiple times in Scripture itself throughout the Bible. And it's always brought up to mention the various forms of wickedness in Sodom. It also has, it was a story for the the people of Israel, the children of Israel, throughout Israel's history. They were to remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were to remember it, and the reason why they were to remember it, and the reason why they were to recall it, is they were to learn that God is a God who judges the wicked. God judges the wicked. I know that we don't like to think about a God who judges. I know that. I get that. Or anyone who judges for that matter. We don't like to think of anyone who judges. We want to think of a God as the God of love. God is love, we say. And that's right. And that's true. But a loving God and a God who judges, a loving God and a God of wrath are not two different things. A God of love and a God of wrath are not mutually exclusive. If you truly love something and you love it dearly, You get very angry, filled with wrath, if you see that thing destroyed, harmed, hurt, or becoming unraveled at the seam. If you love something and you're watching it unravel at its seams, being violated, destroyed, you get angry. And if you don't get angry, chances are you don't love. Love and wrath are not opposites. And this is why we have to get this story right. This is why we have to get this story right. Our image of God will directly affect how we either pursue or avoid God. This is a very true statement. This is why many of you have been showing up every single week going, I want to know the character of God. I'm not yet a believer necessarily. I'm here listening. I'm being exposed to what you guys believe. And this is is very important to get. Our image of God will directly affect how we either pursue God or avoid God. If we think of God to be this angry bully in the sky that has really good aim and knows how to throw fireballs from heaven and is looking for a reason to judge us, this will directly affect how we pursue God. Or this, more accurately will directly affect how we avoid God. More than likely, this will lead to avoiding Him. This is probably why some of you have avoided God up to this point. That's why you're probably here trying to learn about God. However, if you think God is this amoral grandpa in the sky, and this is probably more the position of the Bay Area, this a, God is this amoral grandpa, it's all good, God is full of love, and nothing offends Him. This too will directly affect how you pursue or avoid God. And I would say, it, it actually, if, if you have this idea of this amoral grandpa, I don't think you either pursue or avoid God. You're indifferent toward God because you think God is indifferent. God's just there, whatever. He's all love, whatever. I'm all love. I don't really pursue God or avoid God. He's just there. And not only that, almost as important in the book, God Behaving Badly, the author writes, our image of God will also affect what we think God's followers should be like. 
Isn't this true? Not only will our image of God directly affect how we uh, pursue God, but it also affects how we live. If God were really angry, sexist, and racist, it would follow that Christians would be as well. This is true. This is why most of, most of, the, most of society looks at Christianity and goes, I know what you believe. I already know because I know you're God and God is angry and sexist and racist and full of wrath and angry and you are the same thing. And this is true. If, if God were angry, sexist, racist, mad at everyone, wouldn't we pick at every single event? Well, actually, there are churches that do that. And this is their vision of God. God hates everybody. Their vision of God is God hates everyone. And so what, how do they react? Well, we hate everyone. And he goes on and he says, the issues of violence and pressing and controversial ones facing the world. If we have to get this story right, we have to get this story right in order to get the character of God right. To best understand what we are to do and how we are to respond to God. Not only is this important so we get God right, but how we behave. How, what we believe about God is how we will behave. That is why it is very important to get this text right. Because a lot of you have read this text, heard this text taught in a certain way. And it's important that what we, when we read this text, we get it right. And so I want to look at this text this morning in three acts. And here they are. Location, dislocation, and relocation. Location, dislocation, and relocation. Act one, location. Now, it's very important we start the story where the story begins. Remember how Genesis started. It started with shalom. It started with that Hebrew word shalom. And as Cornelius Plantinga famously said, shalom is the way things ought to be. Shalom is the way things ought to be. I think that we all have this collective memory of the garden. And this is where we have to start. This is why everybody wants peace. This is why everybody wants justice. This is why we all cry out, it's not fair. I want peace. There should be world peace, peace with our, with our economy, peace with the environment, peace with ourselves, peace with animals. Why does everybody want peace? We all, every single one of us, has this collective memory of the garden. For in the garden, everything was perfect. The garden was the weaving together of God and humans and all creation and justice and fulfillment and delight. The Hebrew, Hebrew prophets call this shalom. It was peace. It was peace with God Peace with nature, peace with environment, peace with others, peace with family, peace with self, and everything was equally at peace. It was all weaved together perfectly. And this is why Genesis 2 famously says, and they were both naked and not ashamed. What does that mean? This wasn't just physical. This was emotional and spiritual. They were whole. They were at peace with themselves. They were at peace with God. They were at peace with nature. This is where the Bible starts. It's important for us to get where the Bible starts. So before we can understand the sin of Sodom, we have to know the shalom of the garden. Before you get the sin of Sodom, before we start talking about the sin of Sodom, we're like, oh, Sodom, you better understand the shalom of the garden. You better understand the way it was supposed to be at the beginning. And if you don't, you will either overcorrect with Sodom or kind of go, oh, it's kind of like whatever. You have to get the shalom of the garden. This was God's good creation in the Garden of Eden. Everything was good. It was in harmony. And God stepped back from everything he had, he had made and put it in order and said, it's very good. It's very good. The way he weaved everything together, the way that the lion and the lamb got, 
were, were friends and the way that humanity was at peace with its environment, the way that humanity was at peace with each other and the way that, that humanity was at peace with God and everything was weaved together, God said, this is very, very good. That something happened. As Eugene Peterson said, a catastrophe has occurred. We are no longer in continuity with our good beginning. We have been separated from it by a disaster. We are also, of course, separated from our good end. We are separated because of a disaster, but we're also separated. The way that our lives end are disasters as well. We all die. So we are, in other words, in the middle of a mess. So what happened? Sin happened. Dislocation happened. Our first parents were removed from the garden. They were dislocated from Shalom. Genesis 2 says this. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore God, the Lord God, sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east, that's very important clue, east of the, east of the garden of Eden, east of Eden, he placed a cherubim, an angel, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam and Eve, our first parents, who lived in perfect shalom and peace, were removed. They were dislocated. And from that point on, we've been trying to get back in. We've been trying to get back into the peace of God, the shalom of God, the rest of God. So it's very telling. It's very important that you first get this because in Genesis chapter 13, when Lot chooses Sodom as a place to live, when, when Abraham and Lot are, 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 realize that the land can't support both of them and, and Abraham goes, Lot, choose wherever you want to live. It's very important to understand the Garden of Eden to understand why Lot chose Sodom. Genesis 13, this is how it, it's phrased. Then Abraham said to Lot, Hey, let there be no strife between me and you, and your, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me, Lot. If you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Listen. And then Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, everywhere like the garden of the Lord. The reason why Lot chose Sodom, he was on this high place. He looks over to Sodom and Gomorrah and goes, it looks like the garden of Eden. It looks like peace. It looks like prosperity. It looks like the Garden of Eden. And now here's the juxtaposition. In parentheses it says in the text, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot wanted to get back into Eden. Lot wanted to go back to this place of perfection. He's like, it looks like perfection. It looks perfect. But then it says this, so Lot journeyed east. Two things that you pick up here on the narrative. You have to pick these things up. Because this is the way that Genesis was written. The connection between Sodom and the garden is there. The narrator put it there. The narrator is actually drawing a comparison between the two. It was Sodom and Gomorrah, and this is right before the Lord was about to destroy it. And it looked like the garden of the Lord. He's comparing the garden of the Lord to Sodom. And the fact that in order for Lot to get there, he had to journey east. East of Eden is always a narrative clue in Genesis as a way of moving away from the shalom of God. If you're going east in, in Genesis, you're going away from God. And this is where we get to the sin of Sodom now. Act two, act one was location. Act two, dislocation. So what was the sin of Sodom? 
This is what has been the debate of many scholars over the centuries. More recent liberal scholars say that the sin of Sodom was bad hospitality. That's true. They say that it was bad. If you read modern scholars right now, they're going, you know why God threw down fire from heaven? Because these men went into Sodom and they didn't treat them right. There was bad hospitality, so God had to judge them. Bad hospitality. Older, more traditional scholars say the sin of Sodom was homosexuality. So which is it? Bad hospitality or homosexuality? Look at verse 20. Then the Lord said, because the outcry, this is when he's talking with Abraham, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. From this we know that it wasn't simply bad hospitality because this was before the angels ever arrived in Sodom. Before Sodom can treat these angels badly, they were already in sin. There was an outcry to God. God heard this. The Lord said to Abraham that Sodom and Gomorrah was in grievous sin. And their sin, their outcry, whenever there's sin, there's injustice. And it goes up to God and God cannot ignore sin. God can't just go, oh, there's sin there, I'm just going to ignore it. He wouldn't be a loving God if he did that. And there's injustice in Sodom and he can't ignore injustice. The, the people that were treated unjustly are crying out for justice. And God, being a just God, is the one who hears it. And it's like bleeding in the ears of God. God keeps hearing Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah, sin, sin, sin. God hears it, and he has to do something. And because of this, because of this sin, God has to see for himself if it is as bad as he hears. This is weird, right? It's like, if God is who he says he is, who's revealed to be who he says he is, from this point on, he's the ever-present, all-powerful, all-knowing, creating, sinning God, then there is no need for God to come down to the earth to see if the report is right. Why would God go down? Like, don't you know God? Why would you go down to see if it's true? This is why. It shows the personableness, if I can make up a word, and I can, shows the personableness of God. It shows how God approaches us. This is why God ate with Abraham. This is why God is talking with Abraham. This is why God allows him and Abraham to barter back and forth. There's the personableness of God. He makes himself known. God is a God who's approachable. God is a God who makes himself known. If he didn't make himself known, we would never know him personally. But not only that, it shows the care of God. If God must judge this place, his judgment must be thorough. If God's really, God is not this trigger happy guy going, boom, and like destroying something. Oh, that was maybe too quick. I should have probably seen if it was. He goes down and he walks in that city. He sends his angels to go walk and say, is it as bad as they say it is? He shows care here. Now, according to the Lord, Sodom's sin was grave. It was serious. It was severe. The Hebrew word here for sin, when it says, Sodom, sin has come before me, the word is weight. Or heaviness. The same word is used in Psalm 38.5. My iniquities, it says, like a heavy burden are too heavy for me. The Bible uses the language of sin in different various ways. What happens is basically this. Whenever we sin, whenever we rebel against God, whenever we reject God and God's ways, there's something concrete that happens. Sin creates a reality. We've talked about this many times. Sin creates a reality. Sin creates something 
that has this thingness quality to it. That's why whenever you sin against your roommate, you walk in the room and you see him or her and you're like, there's something in the room that wasn't there yesterday. When there's sin, there's something there. Why? Because sin creates reality. Whenever you sin against somebody, you know that there's something between. If you're you're married and you sin against your spouse, you walk into the room, you're like, there's something in the room. It's called sin. And it has to be dealt with. So sin takes on all this language in the Bible, like sin as a weight. It's a heavy burden, like here. Sin is a stain. You are stained. You are unclean. That idea is carried on throughout the Bible. It's also carried into like Lady Macbeth, which she said, out, damn, spot, out. And she's trying to get it out. There's a stain of sin that's there. And sin is debt. We fall into debt of sin. And God says to Abraham that Sodom's sin, Sodom's weight, Sodom's heaviness has come before him and he cannot ignore it. God cannot ignore sin. God cannot ignore the cry of, the in, of injustice. It's a reality that must be dealt with. So back to our question. What weight of sin was Sodom carrying that caused the shouts of injustice to rise up to God? Traditionally, it has been said it was the sin of homosexuality that God rained down fire from heaven. Others say, more recently, that it was the sin of inhospitality that God brought judgment on Sodom. Actually, according to this text, it's bigger and grander than both of them. What was the sin of Sodom? This was the sin of Sodom. The sin of Sodom was the fact that it was the antithesis of the Garden of Eden at every level. The sin of Sodom, what it was anti-garden. It was anti-creation. It was anti-everything that, that the way that God designed it. Everything that God put in order to be in harmony was anti. It was anti-everything. When these angels entered Lot's home, This mob of angry men from the city, both young and old, it says, gathered around Lot's house and demanded that he turn over the angels. Now, they didn't know that they were angels at the time. They thought they were just men. They wanted Lot, turn over that man. We want to gang rape him. If you don't believe me, look at verse 5. And then they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we might know them. Now, some people say, well, that word know means... No, like get to know, like hang out. Like where are those men at? We want to have, you know, we want to have coffee with them. We just want to ask their names, see how they're doing. Now, that word no in the Bible is used over 6,000 times and it means all kinds of different, different things. It means no like hang out. It means no like biblical no. Like Adam knew his wife. Not like, hey, I know you, but it was, we know what that means. Now, what's happening here? They're like, that word means like they just want to get to know him. They're, they're, they're trying to be nice guests. Like, hey, we heard there's a guest. We want to hang out. Like, what the heck? Why are you going to bed right now? We want to spend time with those men. Like, Call them out here. We're going to play some chess and dominoes. We have things going on. It's fun out here. Is that what's happening? Again, that word, no. What does it mean? It's all about context. Context, context, context. If I said the word, I've used this example before, I think here. If I said the word trunk, what do you think of? It just depends. Elephant trunk, tree trunk, car trunk, swim trunks. What kind of trunk? It depends about, it's all about context. So what does this word no mean? Well, right after that, this is how Lot responds. Lot went out to the men at the entrance. So he went out, opened the door, went outside, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Wickedly? In context, we know the word no means something wicked. 
Now, is it wicked that, hey, don't act so wickedly, man. It's, it's some me time, lot time. Like, I want to hang out with them. Don't, you can't come in and like barge in on our time. That's wicked, man. Is that, is that wicked? Like, hey, we want to hang out too. You didn't invite us over for barbecue. That's, is that what it means? Okay. So some say, even then, going, yeah, I mean, it could be wicked. You, you, don't, you don't let, you don't share a guy, you know, when you're like, hey, let's hang out. That's wicked. Okay, well, let's look the next verse then. Behold, this is what Lot says. No joke. Behold, I have two daughters that haven't known any man. What, that same word there, no. That doesn't know any man. Is the fact that Lot locked up his daughters and they don't know any guy. <laughs> like they've never seen a guy. Is that true? That's not true. This is why. They're engaged to be married. They, he, they have, they have, son, they, they have they, they're already engaged. Lot, um, the angels say, where's your sons-in-law? Where are they? And he goes and tells them, these two daughters are engaged to be married. And so Lot says, I have two daughters who do not know any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. We all know what's happening here. His daughters know other men, obviously. Lot wasn't saying they don't know any other man. They were engaged. What Lot was saying is they don't know any other man. They don't biblically know. What he's saying is this. They're virgins, so gang rape them. No joke. This is insane. This is, this is the guy of faith in the city. He's saying, listen, don't rape them. Rape my daughters. They're virgins. They're, you're going to have a great time with them. Take them and do whatever to them. Do whatever you want to them. Just don't hurt these men. Look at verse 9. And they said, stand back. This fellow has come to sojourn and talking a lot. They're like, you've just, you're kind of new in town. You've only been here for several years now. And you've become the judge? You? Who are you to judge us? Who are you to judge us and what we want to do? We will do what we want to do. Don't judge us. Now, in and, and, and part, this is correct. Who was Lot to judge them? <laughs> he wasn't a good judge. He wasn't like the, the, the epitome of morality. He was like, don't rape them, rape them. That's not the epitome of morality there. Actually, the angels deliver his daughters. Why? They grab Lot. I just love it. Lot's like, I'm going to, hey, angels, I got your back here. I got your back. Okay. So, guys, don't. And then let Lot, the angels open the door, and they grab Lot, and they rip him back in. They're like, you were, you were going to go down in a second. <laughs> and then they strike everyone with blindness. Everyone. They say, stand back. Who made you judge? Now we'll deal worse with you than with them. We, notice that. We will deal worse with you. They were not planning nice things with these angels. We will deal worse with you. We were going to do evil to them. We're going to do worse to you now. But the rest, as you look at this, it's clear that the, that the sin of Sodom contained inhospitality, obviously. It also, it also contained attempted rape and a dad who is willing to give up his virgin daughters to a perverted mob. But how does the rest of the Bible look back on Sodom and Gomorrah? It's repeated over and over again throughout Scripture. How does, what does the rest of the Bible say about the depravity of Sodom? Well, Ezekiel says this. Ezekiel 16, verse 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. You know what this is saying as it looks back on Sodom? It's saying the sin of Sodom 
wasn't just sexual in nature. The sin of Sodom was that they had pride. They had so much pride and they had so much food and so much stuff that there was poor and needy among them and they never reached out to help them, ever. There was sin on every single level. They didn't help the poor and needy. They didn't help those. They had an excess of food. They had an excess of ease and they neglected people. That's what Ezekiel says. That looks back. Look what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah 23. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. How are they, how, how is Israel like Sodom? It says no one turns from evil. No one turns from evil, even at the chance of grace, even when God sends an angel, even when God sends a prophet, even when God sends a messenger, even when God sends himself, there is no turning from evil. They don't give, they don't give grace and opportunity to end their lives. No chance to come to their senses. When, when God says, turn from your sin, they go, whatever, who are you to judge me? Don't judge my, don't judge what I do. I'm not even going to call it sin. It's just me. We're unjust, we're sexually immoral, we'll just do whatever we want to do. We'll treat the poor how we want to treat the poor. I'll get as much stuff and, and, and make my bank account as big as I want to. God, you better not tell me what to do. They don't turn. That's what Jeremiah says. But look at Jude. This one stings. Jude one seventeen. just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Eternal fire. The sin of Sodom was sexual in nature from homoerotic lust to a dad willing to whore his daughters out to the daughters in an ironic twist at the end of the story getting their dad drunk and sleeping with him. The sin of Sodom was decreation at every level. The sin of Sodom was the antithesis of the way that God made everything work in harmony. Please understand that. Why did God rain down fire from heaven? Because it was anti-Genesis 1 and 2. It was anti-creation. It was the anti the way that God made the world to live in harmony. It was anti-everything. It was anti-community. In the Garden of Eden, they were both naked and unashamed. They didn't, that didn't mean they, have, they lived in one big orgy. They were vulnerable and lived in harmonious community. It was anti-community. Sodom was anti-generosity. Sodom was anti-family. Sodom was anti-justice. Sodom was anti-sexuality. Sodom was anti-commitment. Sodom was anti-God. The people of Sodom should be judged for inhospitality, but also for injustice, and not just for not caring for their poor, but perverting the family and sexuality. They were all judged for it. And this story is used over and over again in the scriptures as a type and, and scene to characterize the depth of human depravity. And God sending his messengers to see for themselves if it's that bad, and them being almost raped in the process serves to validate God's decision to wipe these two cities off the face of the map. So why did God judge Sodom and Gomorrah? Here's why. God had to. 
It's anti-everything he created this world to be. And what he saw for himself is the gravest, most heartbreaking part of the whole story. This is the most heartbreaking part of Sodom. It wasn't gang rape. It wasn't family breakdown. It wasn't injustice. It was that there was no hope for it. The angels themselves went there, and there was still no hope. Act three, relocation. Now, to the surprise of many, the Bible... And thus the gospel is more radical about sin than fundamentalists are. Now you're in here going, oh my gosh, this church is so fundamental. This church is like, I knew this was going to happen. I knew, they, they, they believe, let me tell you the truth. The Bible is more radical about sin than traditionalists and fundamentalists. They want to point out the, this one sin in Sodom. They want to point out the sexual perversity in Sodom. That's all they want to talk about. When actually it was the depth and the width of their total depravity that God judged them. It was not for sexual immorality only, but a failure to practice social justice. It wasn't, that the, it wasn't the fact that Sodom had a red light district. It was also for the fact that it didn't have a food bank. That's why God judged Sodom. The Bible is more radical about sin than the fundamentalists, but it's also more radical about grace than any liberal. Here's why. When Abraham was bartering with God, Remember that part at the very beginning? Abraham's going, at the, at the beginning, it's exclamation points. God, who, and it's a rhetorical question, will not the judge of all the earth do what's right? Exclamation point, question mark. You know how you guys text like that? Exclamation, text, like, like, are you kidding me? You're gonna do what's right, God. Would you not spare? And this, is, this was a wonderful exercise. This is the first time anything like this has ever happened in the Bible. Abraham is saying, God, for 50 people, would you not spare the entire city for 50? And God surprisingly says, I would. And Abraham's like, whoa, you would? Okay, wait, wait, wait. What about 45? God's like, 45. He's like, what about 40? 40. And then he starts realizing what he's saying. He's like, oh, God, don't kill me. 30. 30. Okay, okay one more time. 20. 20. And then it gets to this. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. Don't get mad. Okay, God, don't get mad. I, I'll speak once again, I promise. This is the last time. Suppose 10 are found there. And God answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. But why does he stop? He's like, 10? Okay, cool. That was great. That was a good conversation. I'm out. Why did he stop? Why didn't he go 9, 8, 7? Why didn't he get down to 1? God, for the sake of one righteous person, would you spare the city? Why didn't he go to 1? Because he probably knew. That when he got to one, it would only be Lot. And though Lot's a believer, he was far from righteous. He knew, case of one, Lot, yeah, you're probably going to kill it. He knew it. He knew if I got down to that person, there's no way Lot's righteousness can cover this. But look at what Abraham discovered in the process. And he discovered something profound that's unprecedented in the scriptures. Like, this is insane. This is what he found. He's asking God, and he's, this is what he's basically saying to God. God, could you value the righteousness of, a f of the few? Could you love the righteousness of just a few so much that it covers the unrighteousness of the many? Could you love righteousness of just a couple so much that you would spare a whole city because of the righteous? And God says, and this is a shocking, shocking question. What Abraham is asking is, could you spare the unrighteousness of an entire city for the faithful remnant inside it, and God says, yes. 
Do you know how groundbreaking this is? Abraham is saying, is our record all we have to go on? Is it just my record? I sin, that's it. My, I'm done. I sin, or can someone else's righteousness be accounted to me as my righteousness? Can I sin and then the righteousness of someone else be moved over to my account and I'm spared because of their righteousness? Can that happen, God? Can that happen? And God goes, that can happen. This is mind-blowing. And so he keeps going down. 30, 20, 10. Is it possible that the righteousness of someone else could save you? Is it possible that the righteousness of some other person can save you? Abraham knows that God is righteous. He says, it's a rhetorical question. God, will not the judge of all the earth do what's right? I know that you're righteous, God. I know you're righteous. I know you're holy. But are you merciful? Could you spare the city? If Abraham would have kept going, he would have known that God would spare the entire world on behalf of one righteous. God would spare the entire world for one righteous person. That's God's heart. But who? Who's that righteous? Not even Abraham himself was righteous enough to save Sodom. Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, no one in the Bible is as righteous enough to bear the sins of people. Though the righteous record of one could be transferred to another, which is pivotal in this text, who is righteous enough? And the answer is no one. The Apostle Paul affirms this in Romans. He says, no one is righteous. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside together and become worthless. No one does good, not even one. If God will cover the sin of the many on account of one, if the principle has been established that God would impute the righteousness of one person on the account of many, then the question that abides is, who's that one? Who can do it? And that question remains unanswered until you come to the New Testament. And then Romans says in chapter 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Who is that one? See, this principle is established. It's not just our account that we have to go on. Nobody. You even betray your own morals. You even betray your own standards. You know that. You know you do. How much more do you betray God's? There's no one righteous, not a single person, but can the righteousness of another be imputed, can be transferred to us? And God says, yes. Who is that? Jesus. But, but listen, this is a very important part of this narrative. The righteousness wasn't just transferred to us. The righteousness of Christ, faith in him, isn't just transferred to us. But Jesus took the fire of the judgment of God upon himself. Jesus took the wrath of God against family breakdown, against sexual immorality, against inhospitality, against injustice, against hoarding. He took all of that 
wrath, all that God has to, he has to judge in justice. He has to, he's a, a good, faithful, just, holy God. And he pours it all out on Jesus. So Jesus gets all out the wrath of God and we get the righteousness of God. He took the fire of God's judgment and the wrath of God upon himself. So this is what we affirm. We affirm that we are all broken sexually. That we are all inhospitable. That we are all unjust. That we are all unholy. In this sense, we are all sodomites. All of us. But Jesus rescues us. And not just that, he restores us back to shalom. He restores us back to peace with God. And then what he does, he makes us righteous. And will God not spare a city on the count of one righteous? He would. Would God not preserve a whole city for the sake of followers of Jesus who have been made righteous by the blood of Christ? He will. And so what he does is he sends us back in as salt and light into places like this beloved, the beloved Bay Area to be salt and light to go. Because of the righteousness of Christ, God saves sinners of whom we all are, all of us. If you're thinking, this church is full, if you think that Christianity is like someone's holier than you, holier than thou, that is not true Christianity. It's that we're all, all of us, every single one of us are, are sodomites in the sense. All of us do unjust, unjustly. All of us act this way. All of us say, God, who are you to judge me? Or to our neighbors, who are you to judge me? All of us do that. It's until we realize that all of that judgment has been poured out on Jesus where the judgment of God and the love of God come together. We are saved. We are redeemed. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you that you rescue us, that you save us from our sin. I know there's not one righteous person in this building, in this city, apart from Jesus. And we know that by your sacrifice, you've made us righteous. And Lord, I know, I, I, I just pray that we get this sense that you are a God who is a complete, loving God, but you are a God who is a just God. And you will set things right. You must. You made this world perfect. You made it to be enjoyed, experienced, peace, shalom. And we destroy it. We do. And God, if we're mad at anyone this morning, I pray we'd be mad at ourselves. Because we're the ones that destroy relationships. We're the ones that pervert justice. We're the ones that are sexually immoral. But Jesus, I pray you would set us right. That you'd restore us back to yourself. And then by that, begin to restore everything in us and around us. In Jesus' name, amen.